Welcome to Go Wonk Yourself. I'm Eddie Michelson. I'm Lucas Anderton. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Galentine's Day for uh, us lonely folk. Lucas Anderton, before we start, I'd like to ask you, would you date a Republican girl? Yes. I had, I, I don't think she listens to this podcast because she's really selfish and rude, but I had the <laughs> biggest freaking crush on this girl's senior year, and I'm not supposed to ever tell anyone this, her mother was raised, like her mother's oh, no. nanny when she was a child was David Duke's wife. Oh, my God. So she, like, her mom knows David Duke really well, and, like, she's super <laughs> conservative, and I would have gotten on one knee and married her. <laughs> but, like, yeah, she was very conservative. That would have been an interesting dinner conversation. Yeah, and, like, the wedding would have been really weird. Oh, my God. But, like, yeah, I would date a conservative. I, I like conservatives. But that's like, not a conservative, though. I, I'm, so, I'm not talking about a KKK <laughs> member. She's not a member of the KKK. <laughs> She oh just, God. her mom has ties to the KKK. Her mom doesn't like me, so if she ever hears this, she already doesn't like me, so. Hi, Meredith, how are you? <laughs> Alright, well, now that we've both kissed our political careers <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> let's, uh, let's jump into the news, what do you say? Alright, Susan Rice, um, she sent an email to herself, uh, which is, I was actually gonna send myself a letter on Valentine's Day, <laughs> um, but she did this on, uh, uh, I believe, Inauguration Day, and it had to do with a meeting between uh, President Obama, the Vice President, the uh, Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, um, and FBI Director James Comey, who we're both a fan of. We uh, are. We, we love him. I do love him. <laughs> He's teaching at William & Mary's D.C. campus next year, oh, is so he? he'll, he'll always be in the district. Oh, interesting. We'll have to, um, we'll have to swing Additionally, by. Additionally, Susan Rice, actually, right before this podcast, I went and saw her office at American University. She is here being an adjunct professor and writing her book. So there we go. We're next door neighbors to a bunch of characters in this story. So, uh, there's, uh, there's two different kind of views with this story. Uh, it had to do with how the investigation to, should, um, sort of happen about, uh, Trump and um, Russia collusion. So I kind of want to get first uh, your point of view on what what you make of this. I just think it's sort of a uh, a weird thing to do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, I don't necessarily want to assume that they were doing anything wrong. Um, but it does look really sketchy when on tr Obama's very last day in power, like all of the power brokers in his administration met who have all had their hands on this investigation in some way. Um, but I do want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, so the Obama administration took active steps to memorialize the investigation before the Trump administration took office to prevent this administration from wiping it all clean. Um, so like the Nunes memo, the Rice uh, email contains some details benefiting supporters of the investigation. Obama tried to detach the White House from the criminal investigation unless it was absolutely necessary to withhold information from a suspected Russian asset. So, like, Obama... I honestly, I'm mad at Obama in a lot of ways because apparently there was evidence of, like, Russian meddling in the election that he knew about and didn't act on right. because he didn't want it to look like he was trying to sabotage our democracy and, like, keep Trump from becoming the president. But, like, at the same time... I almost relate this to when uh, Bill Clinton, when it was found out that Bill Clinton had information about Bin Laden that he didn't act on, um, where in like hindsight's twenty twenty, Obama probably should have done something. Um, Agreed. Uh, I think also though a lot of my uh, conservative friends uh, would have raised an issue about that as well. I don't think uh, obviously 
him as president should have known to do that and should have done that regardless of the backlash that he would have gotten politically. But yeah. I can also see that um, my friend Sean Hannity would uh, would obviously be all over that regardless. So I, I think, like, I mean, yeah, he he foresaw the political backlash, but regardless of that, it was the right thing to do if we saw that Russia had is potentially trying to meddle in our elections. Well, but, Eddie, you know what scares me, though, is that more and more evidence we collect that Russia was uh, in some way meddling with our democratic process. Why aren't we doing anything before 2018? Like, this is one of the most important elections of you and I's lifetime, and or you and me's lifetime. I don't freaking know. Um, but, like... Nothing has changed to prevent something like this from happening again. I mean, well, nothing think about we it. know China? of necessarily, but what do you what That's do you true. think should be done? I think paper ballots. A, you think paper ballots? Paper are the ballots. Way to go? Twitter and Facebook need to step the hell up and like get bots off of there. Like they have complete control over who's on their their sites. Like they need to identify that these are. Real but what people. you just identified there is actually two different types of collusion. You have the indirect collusion in which they're injecting information that's uh, injecting false information into social media networks with the hopes that it will sway voters. And there's the other kind, which is direct voter booth. We need uh, to fix hacking. Both. I think we need paper ballots. I'm all for like digital. But is there any real trade. evidence that the Russians directly hacked voting booths and changed I don't the votes? Know. I honestly, have I don't think no there's enough idea. evidence for that. I think that's a little sketchy. But in yeah. terms of them injecting yeah. information, I think that's that argument carries a lot more weight. And the way we handle that um, is certainly uh, something to talk about. Yeah. So last week we talked about hashtag release the memo. We talked about Devin Nunez's memo, and um, what's come out since we talked about that was that. This was the first time since the 2016 election that there has been a Russian bot movement on Twitter. Um, they traced, I think it was like one in three tweets that said hashtag release the memo was traced back to Russian origin. And like, wow. that's really freaking scary that like these social media campaigns are being kicked off by like Russian activists and Russian bots. Like, it's really hard to trace who's participating in like hashtags because so many people participate in like and to find the origin is really really hard well, i have a i have a sort of more philosophical question regarding like bots on social media would it change the nature of uh of how you feel about um the the bots that are intended to sway voters one way or another using uh quote-unquote fake news or just falsified information would it change the nature of that if the origin of those bots were actually here on american soil or does the fact that they're coming from a foreign entity change the nature of how we should deal with it yeah so like first of all the fact that we're talking about bots getting involved in like the american electoral process in 2018 is really kind of scary that seems like a movie plot um like these <laughs> black like, mirror yeah like these angry bots are like like spreading their propaganda around the world but like one of them's gonna run eventually <laughs> anyone can run for president even <laughs> oprah um so like it would be different if it was from an american origin but at any point in like then it would be like legal and safe quote unquote not safe i don't know the word i'm looking for but like it wouldn't be as scary, and I wouldn't be as worried about the fate of our democracy if it was an Amer if it was American origin. But the fact that it's this outside country who is arguably our biggest uh, national security threat, um, that's the scary part. And the fact that they can have so much sway over the American electorate, it'd be one thing for Americans to be 
tricking Americans. Like, we've been doing that since the history of our country. Like, Americans <laughs> exploiting other Americans. Dumb Americans. Um, but, like, now Russians are doing it. And they're using, like, Twitter and social media and Facebook. And, like, we're not doing anything about it. Yeah, I think um, the best way to combat this that would have... Uh, support from both sides because if you have a let's say you have a piece of falsified information that's being spread everywhere and then twitter decides to remove that suddenly some people on uh either side of the whatever the falsified information is if it's favorable to the left or right the far side of that end is going to no matter what say will you ban this and therefore it gives it credibility because you're trying to remove this and you're trying to hide it. So I think the best way to combat the uh, Russian bots... Now, again, I don't really know to what extent they swayed uh, the vote. Yeah, or, and nobody does. Yeah, no one no one really knows. But uh, we can acknowledge that if this is happening at all, it, it, it raises a potential problem. Um, so I think uh, the best way to do that is for um, there to be some way to tell to at at least make people aware of the fact that this is happening because if we're just going on social media and we don't know like what information is real what information is fake and what information is just bias um then we we don't really know what to make of when we're presented with a like a russian bot so i think just being aware of it in general is the first step for people to not be swayed uh any way by it and senator mark warner from virginia has been a big leader on this he's the ranking democratic member of the senate intelligence committee with uh aaron burr from north carolina and he he has constantly been fighting twitter and facebook because they've like neglected the issue like a, a they are a big reason that trump got elected and, like, they've totally, like, just claimed, like, plausible deniability that, like, they weren't aware that they set up their platforms with the purpose of anyone being able to register an account worldwide. But I don't think they realize th- the impact that their platforms were going to give to other powers over our country. I mean, like, someone can completely make a false identity on social media way easier than you could have ever made a false identity before. And you can just spread anything you want. Um, like RT articles were shared over the past year more than like ever before. And that's Russian propaganda network. And like, it shouldn't be normalized. And so it's really scary, but like, I do want to move on. Um, so Eddie and I started this podcast because we realized that like, although he's relatively conservative and I'm relatively liberal, we can agree on a lot of issues. We can talk out the issues and we can either either agree or respectfully disagree and learn a lot from each other. Um, he might educate me on something and I'll take a new position on it. I might educate his, him some educate him on something and he'll take a new position on it. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Pineapple That's does not likely. belong on pizza. I <laughs> would like to make that very clear. Um, no, I totally agree. See, we can agree on something. <laughs> wow. Um, Look at that. And so, like, Democrats and Republicans, it's almost been, like, frowned upon to agree and be friends with one one another. And so there's a group in the Senate who is trying to disprove that theory. The Senate has always been the less partisan body. Um, and and I, oh, I, oh, I just want to interject by saying that um, Lucas was a huge fan of this story because he actually um, 
is willing to date a KKK member. Stop. So the fact that he likes <laughs> to reach across those kinds of lines, uh, he really enjoyed the story. So go on. Anyway, so it's called the Common Sense Coalition. It is the bipartisan group of senators who ended the government shutdown. So it's a group calling themselves the Common Sense Coalition, and they were the ones behind the reopening of the government from that first shutdown um, about a week ago. So as their colleagues went on the airwaves or rushed to the Senate floor to trade blame over a government shutdown, about two dozen centrist senators from both parties crammed for hours into the Capitol Hill office of Senator Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine who has kind of been um, probably the most important senator because she is one of the swaying votes on every single bill. one of the most annoying. So by my... (laughs) And so one senator referred to her office as Switzerland. You're not a Democrat in that office. You're not a Republican in that office. You're a senator trying to do what's best, in your opinion, for the American people. So by Monday afternoon, when the Senate voted overwhelmingly overwhelmingly to end the three-day shutdown, the group convened by Ms. Collins uh, was credited with nudging together the Senate leadership toward a deal to reopen the federal government in exchange for a promise from Republican leaders to address the fate of young, undocumented immigrants known as Dreamers. Eddie, what do you think? Okay, I, I have a I have a strong sort of opinion about these sort of centrist, uh, sort of virtuous figures that we have in the Senate. I compromise is not an ends; it's a means to ends that you want. When you that's a good point. If you and I are compromising on an issue, it's not because either of us want the compromise itself. It's because we want our own uh, piece of the deal. And the only way to reach that is by compromising. So I think that, uh, Susan Collins and a lot of these people who are involved, uh, with this sort of centrist, uh, wing of, uh, either party really. Um, but I, have seen it a lot in Republican, um, uh, in the Republican party is that they think of compromise and bipartisanship as the end itself. And that that alone makes them in the right. And I don't agree with that at all. I think that we should be principled and we should fight for what we want at all costs. And if we need to compromise in order to reach those goals, that's when we should look across party lines. But um, I, I just don't, I don't see the, the I, I think it's a very arrogant thing to say we're, we're the common sense coalition just because we're willing to make compromises that neither side is happy with. So I, I don't want to compare them. I, I think you're overestimating like how loyal these senators are to the common sense coalition. It's not going to be like the Freedom Caucus. The Freedom Caucus is a group who they put the Freedom Caucus before the Republican Party. Um, like all of the bills from Freedom Caucus members originate in the Freedom Caucus. They put the Freedom Caucus first. I think the Common Sense Coalition is going to be a last-ditch effort on everything. It's when they think that people like Mitch McConnell... that's what it should be, yeah. Yeah. Last-ditch effort. It's when Republicans and Democrats absolutely can't agree on something. I think that's when they're going to resort to this Common Sense Coalition. Well, the thing that Um, I take issue with, though, is that Susan Collins hasn't hasn't uh, assumed that centrist position as a last-ditch effort. She's assumed that position in order, w- in a way to sort of identify herself as the common-sense Republican. And I, I, I'm not saying that she doesn't actually believe what she does and that, her, that she doesn't believe in the votes that she chooses. I'm saying that that's the persona that she's taken on, and I think that uh, sort of embodies the common sense coalition. So whether or not it's a last-ditch effort or not, I think that I, I, I sort of take issue with this whole identifying um, 
radical centrism to common sense. I don't think those are two things are necessarily one in the same. Well, so like my issue with it is that this group of I don't remember how many senators I said it was. Uh, do you see that anywhere? I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't know where it is. But so this group of senators has almost taken complete control of the Senate. It's like they've staged a coup because neither the Republicans nor the Democrats can get anything done without this group's support. But I'm torn on whether that's an issue or not, because these are the people who seem to like Mark Warner, for example, he can he voted to confirm quite a few of Trump's nominees. Um, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. By the way, fun fact, Lisa Murkowski was a write-in candidate for Senate with the last name Murkowski. (laughs) Alaskans had to go to the polls and write that name on their ballot, (laughs) and she won. She lost the primary to a super far-right person, and she still ran, and she won. But anyways, so, like, part of me is, like, these are all pretty moderate senators who seem to have abandoned Trump's party and seem to have abandoned Chuck Schumer's party, and they, they... basically vote with like whatever's good for their state so like part of me is like yeah this is a good thing like you can't win by with these ultra republican bills or ultra democratic bills you need bills that are best for america and best for your constituents but at the same time i really don't like that the power of the senate they've thrown out all all senate tradition and made themselves like the governing authority in the senate um so like the parliamentarian part of me is like this is kind of scary yeah i think and also i think you're where you're coming from, like I, I keep going back to this, is is kind of uh, Im- important in my opinion. I think when you look at someone like Rand Paul, who by no means is a centrist, um, he's also kind of a disruptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says like, "No, I'm standing on my principles," and I mean, he's it's, an ideologue before a party loyalist. Right, and I think I mean that's become kind of a meme because he votes no, like yeah, who even knows what percent of the time <laughs> because he's like, "This isn't good enough. Nothing will ever be good enough for me." He's like my ex girlfriend, so. <laughs> <laughs> So, hot take. Um, So, yeah, so I think, but he's coming from a a place of principle rather than I want to be the voice of reason. So I'm going to reach across the other side and see if we can come up with something. But for now, I'm not going to side with my party on this particular issue. So I think, yeah, where you're coming from sort of matters in this. And like, Rand Paul, he was actually the reason we had the second, uh, what was it, like, hour-long shutdown. Oh, yes. Um, he basically filibustered until midnight. So then the Senate had to recess. And then they came back in a few hours later with a budget deal. So while Rand Paul was wasting his time on the Senate floor, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer were hammering it out and making a deal. Um, Rand Paul is a good example of an ideologue, but he's also a really bad example of someone who stays true to principle. I think he's an obstructionist more than anything. Like, I think he tries to be, like, this, like, limited government guy, but to the point where he just wants to disagree with literally everything that happens in the Senate. Um, And maybe you might disagree, but, like, I don't think he has one central ideology. Um, I remember seeing him in, like, the Republican presidential primary just kind of hop around on issues... And it seemed like he just wanted to disagree with mainstream Republicans on everything. Um, well, I think he was certainly trying to separate himself from the mainstream true. Republican Party. I, I think there is some truth to what you're saying. He's either uh, what, you, as you would call, like a contrarian in, in the sense that you were just talking about, or he's so fixated on his ideology that he can't compromise on anything. And I think that's sort of what his father was like, Ron Paul. I think I respect was, Ron Paul a lot. Yeah, he was the same way where he... Um, his he really 
was a principled man and he didn't want to make any sort of compromises which honestly if you're on cap on capitol hill that raises some serious issues because it will never be perfect so yeah that i mean that's certain so, that's certainly an would issue. you go as far as to call him the conservative version of bernie sanders because the the rand paul i just described is also how i would describe bernie sanders he caucuses with the democrats rand paul caucuses with the republicans but at the end of the day if something isn't to bernie sanders liking he isn't going to vote for it just for the sake of party loyalty he stays true to his principle i mean would you would you do you think rand paul is the version of him yeah, I think that I think that's kind of a fair uh, parallel to draw in terms of just like the ideology that they're both coming from. Well, not, not that they're not coming from the same ideology; they're coming from Completely opposite ideologies. Opposite. But but yeah, I, I do see what you're saying in that, and I think that's a fair uh, comparison to make. Yeah, so I I do want to wrap up the Common Sense Coalition, but for now, this group uh, is fulfilling the hope long talked but rarely realized that a centrist contingent could bridge an otherwise deeply divided Senate. Um, the Common Sense Coalition seems to be like a good representation of what we look at the Senate as. While the House is uh, a fiery, partisan body, the Senate has always seemed to be, at the end of the day, we're all rich white guys and we can get along. Um, <laughs> Speaking of rich white guys. Rich white guys. Rob fucking Porter, all right? Rob Porter. <laughs> That's who we're talking rich? about now. He must I, be I rich. don't know. I assume. I, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> well... So, the FBI conducted a background check on an incoming senior White House official last year. Uh, the Bureau learned of the man's history of domestic abuse. Rob Porter, a top aide to President Donald Trump, the man who determines what papers reach this man's desk, uh, physically assaulted both of his previous wives and just came out, I think, like a day ago, a third woman. Um, but the two women came out, and the porter's first wife said that she was physically abused for years, providing a photograph she took of herself to the intercept um, after Porter hit her while they were on vacation in Italy. Um, there's a photo of her with a huge black eye. So during the background interviews for Porter security clearance, um, FBI agents interviewed both of these women. The former wives told the FBI that Porter was abusive during their marriages, um, and nothing happened. So... Um, Colby Holderness, Porter's first wife, provided her correspondence with the FBI to The Intercept. Um, in an interview, she said the pattern of violence in her marriage to Porter began on their honeymoon in 2003 and continued from there. And so the bigger issue that this poses, I do want to talk about specifically Rob Porter, um, but the bigger issue that this poses is that there are dozens of people walking around the White House who haven't gotten confirmed for their security clearances. Um, and that's terrifying. So what do you think about this whole situation, Eddie? <clears throat> Get rid of him. That's I think he's I, gone. I th yeah. You mean as of now he's gone? Or? I have no idea. So he, he showed up to the White House after this whole debacle, and I'm pretty sure Kelly was like, go home. And I don't think he's well, been good. I, I don't... I mean, I think this is a pretty obvious instance in which there's no defense. Yeah. Uh, he should go, and that's that. I, I really don't have anything much more to say about it. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that there's been so many <laughs> so many instances in which like there's been people within the administration who have no place there um i forget her name but uh amarosa 
Oh my uh, god. <laughs> we, so, can I tell a story about Amrosa? Sure, go so for it. So, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Love It or Leave It, one of my inspirations for wanting to start a podcast. <laughs> Eddie went with me to see Love It or Leave It I live, did. and he really enjoyed it, so don't let him convince you he didn't. And <laughs> they played a clip of Amorosa on E! News, where she was, like, sitting on this couch, and she was, like, whispering about how terrified she was of Donald Trump. <laughs> and, like, if you haven't seen this clip, I'm going to show it to Eddie after this. It is the weirdest thing on earth. Like, this Sounds woman weird. was a senior official, basically, like, to our president, and she goes on this gossip channel and just, like, cries about how scared she is of well, the she's president. She's a reality TV, like, yeah, per- it's personality. Weird. But, Eddie, you and I talked about this before the show today. Like, it sucks for conservatives that they've got this guy who's not afraid to enact, like, super conservative policies, who's messing everything up by being a dumbass. Like, if Trump could just shut up, stop talking, and stop having scandals attached to him, then he would be, like, a conservative's wet dream. Because he's enacting far-right conservative policies that people like you, like, tend to really agree with, and you've been waiting for this kind of policy to be enacted on the federal stage. But then stuff like this happens. Rob Porter. And you're like... Now I can't support this guy, you know? Well, this is what scares me is that uh, issues that are that I believe aren't really all that controversial to begin with are now going to be stigma, like stigmatized because they've been they've received uh, endless support from Trump and his administration. Because yeah. now, I mean, obviously, we know what the media does about everything that Trump does. And we know how the general public uh, who hate donald trump and democrats we know how they react every time he uh breathes basically but i mean when you have something to actually attack him for um i i obviously think it's fair and i'll i'll join you in attacking him but i think in general when we look at issues that yeah i generally i um genuinely agree with that he's doing it it makes me a little afraid in the future to see how republicans are going to try to advocate for those also given that trump who has a pretty abysmal approval rating right now and who has had all of these sort of figures attached to him and he himself his personality has been sort of a detriment to his presidency i mean the guy went he was like on record saying that he moved on a woman and like a married woman and that oh she wanted it and that he grabbed her by the p word like this is our president. Pussy is the is the p word, by the way. Yeah. This is. I was trying to keep our is, podcast from having to be rated explicit, but okay, Eddie. Um, <laughs> we've already crossed that <laughs> threshold, so. We have. Um, but like, this is the kind of stuff that's really messing this up for like these committed conservatives who, for the first time in a long time, have a real conservative in office. No offense, Georgie, but like, you weren't the most conservative president <laughs> on earth. Um. And, like, the really scary part is Ro- or Kelly, who I really admired and respected, I didn't agree with him on basically anything, but I was like, this is a respectable guy who is going to control what happens in the White House. He knew about this, and he completely brushed it off. He said, as long as you can do your job, you can stay. And, like, that cannot happen at our highest levels of government. Like, those are people we have to be able to admire and respect, and they need to be good ethical examples, and Rob Porter was anything but that. I think that's uh I think that's a good summary of uh of that particular story but I I'd, I'd like I think it's interesting that you say um conservatives who don't act like conservatives because that pretty much sums up all conservatives right now with the budget proposal it which does. I think we should talk about next because conservatism apparently doesn't matter 
when conservatives take power. It only matters when we're opposing spending when Democrats are in power. But when we're in power, spend away. Go on a shopping spree. We have the <laughs> power of the purse at our disposal. So go out and buy those Louis V bags for everyone. All right. Well, we are now back from uh, Lucas's bathroom break. He I, had, to, I had to take a bathroom. We had to break. cut the podcast just for a second. So. Hold on. Let me let me be clear. I have had to use the restroom since we were 15 minutes in. We are now 28 minutes in, and I still had to use the restroom. So yes, he was rocking back and forth in his seat. I was. Um, it was it was a bad. bit of a disaster. I wish you could have seen it. When we get a TV deal, after Pie and Fry signs us as an advertiser. Uh, and Alex Jones agrees to let us borrow his studio. And Alex Jones lets us borrow his studio. Um, what, oh, you'll be able to see me need to take a bathroom break. <laughs> this is the part of the podcast where we run out of steam and it becomes an absolute disaster. But we Let's have talk to about, talk about, about the, budget the budget proposal. Deal. The most exciting thing on earth, we're going to talk about the budget deal. So Republicans and Democrats somehow in the middle of the night agreed on a budget deal. And then Trump screwed it all up. Well, for conservatives, maybe he didn't screw it all up. But for us Democrats, he screwed it up. He screwed up Chuck Schumer somehow convincing Mitch McConnell to not cut the social safety net program. Um, So the White House and Congress have shown little willingness to cut back on spending, finding it easier to cut taxes and increase spending during Trump's presidency, the Washington Post reports. Why it doesn't matter, according to Axios, the deep safety net net cuts in Trump's budget may play to his base, but they will go nowhere in the Senate where support would be needed from Democrats. <sighs> well, <sighs> look, it's politically impalatable for safety net cuts to happen. It's just anything that, uh, any sort of entitlement reform, entitlement cuts, any, any real spending cuts, when the money's already being spent, and now we have to turn around and say, hey, look, we can't spend that there anymore. There's always going to be people who throw up their arms and say, yeah. we are outraged, and you're doing this to us, and you're the party responsible for that. And Republicans are unwilling to take that sort of heat. And honestly, at this point, I don't think they can afford that heat, but they should still be like a party of principles, well, which I thought they were, and they're unwilling to... The, uh, no, no one in the... No one in our government is willing to look at entitlements honestly and say this needs to change. And if you're gonna cut spending, uh, well, I'm sorry. If you're gonna if you're gonna cut taxes, you have to cut back on spending. Otherwise, you're just blowing out our deficit, which is gonna be a huge problem down the line. So you have to look at this from a historical perspective. When Reagan cut taxes, he also increased military spending. And that sent us into an economic recession because that doesn't make sense. Like, think of it as a business. If a business um, gets rid of some of their profits but also increases their overhead by getting a second location, then that business is not going to do well economically. And that's what our government's doing right now. They just had a massive tax cut bill, but they're also increasing military spending and partially increasing social safety uh, net programs. I don't think that's the issue. I, I think military spending, when you look at 
the amount that's going to military spending, and then you got the amount that's going into entitlements. I don't think there's much of a of a comparison there. I think I, I think in principle you it. could cut back on military spending, but until you reform entitlements, it's not going to do anything. We, we need to find a way to make it so that Social Security isn't a Ponzi scam that's going to send us into economic disaster down the line. We're never going to see our Social Security checks. You know that. I know that. And Even though we're going to be the ones paying the most into it while those freaking baby boomers are <laughs> sucking it all up. Sorry, baby boomers. You suck. <laughs> no, there's not a single baby boomer listening to this right Except now. Except my granddad. Hi, granddad. <laughs> I like the name of our podcast. I'm yeah, not going to change it We will not change that name. Um, so, yeah, I think that right now entitlements and those sort of social programs are the biggest issue that no one wants to touch. So, so Trump's budget, unlike the Senate budget, does cut social safety net programs. It's by a very small amount, but it he is setting it on a course to cut it by several hundred billion over the next few years. Um, he wants to completely reform the SNAP program to a proposed Blue Apron program, um, which instead of people having... Which is not a sponsor of our podcast, by the way. Blue Apron, please get on that. Please sponsor us. <laughs> Call um, me. And so... Like, he wants to reform the system where SNAP recipients have uh, a lot less choice in the kind of food they're buying and that the, the food is sent to them. Um, and, like, so Trump has proposed a much more conservative budget deal. Um, but what do you think purely about the dynamic of Democrats and Republicans agreed on something and now Trump has proposed his own plan that's completely different? I mean, like, don't you think that's almost counterproductive? Uh, I think it depends on, uh, well, in principle, it really depends in my opinion, because if uh, <laughs> if both parties make an agreement that's trash and the president, <laughs> who's the leader of of his own, of the Republican Party, says, look, your deal's trash, let's find something better, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. So, uh, in this particular instance, I think this budget is trash, so... I'll just leave it at that. I, I think that we... Which one? The Senate budget or Trump's? Uh, the Senate budget. Because um, <laughs> the liberals won. <laughs> Arr, damn liberals. Um, look, I think Rand Paul was absolutely correct in what he was saying about this. I think if you're not willing to touch spending, then we have no business cutting taxes and just completely defunding yeah. what we're spending. I, our debt-to-GDP ratio is... 106%, I believe. Um, that's not okay. Yeah. That's unacceptable. I think the debt or the debt's going to run up like $7 trillion from this budget deal over the next few years. It's, it's a disaster. So I think until we become the party of fiscal responsibility, which I was under the impression, I think every Republican who voted for Trump was under the impression that that's what we were, uh, I think this is not going to end well for Republicans, but, if they can't even keep their own promises. But, Eddie, here's my issue, is you don't fix the social safety net reliance by just cutting it. You have to implement programs that are an alternative to the social safety net. Give people vocational education. I don't know how I feel about completely free college, but I do know how I feel about providing vocational training for all people at an affordable or free, like, affordable price or for free. Um, while people are filling these white-collar jobs and, like, there's no white collar openings blue collar jobs are just sitting there empty because nobody is getting vocational training give people on the social safety net 
or in the social safety net, vocational training, they stop relying on SNAP and welfare, et cetera, et cetera. You don't just fix that by cutting oh, no, $7 I, trillion, I agree or $7 that million. The, dollars. the people who are currently relying on social safety net programs should not be thrown off of that. And I think people who have been promised their social security um, checks, they should not be denied that promise at this point either. I think that there should be a weaning off and a cut back over time on the social safety net and uh, entitlements. Um, But yeah, no, I totally agree. I don't think people should just, I don't think we should just slash the spending on that and say, okay, you guys are on your own now. I think that's, so that would be a completely, that, that would be a political disaster also. So like the root of the issue, I was in my moral philosophy class uh, and she was talking about how before she uh, worked her way through grad school, she was working at a subway and there was a woman with four kids who worked at subway with her. And one day she quit and she asked her why. And she said, it is more lucrative for me to be on the welfare system. And the root of the issue is not that she can sit on welfare all day and abuse that system. The root of the issue is that there are jobs that are less lucrative than the welfare system. There should not be. Welfare should be your worst option. Going out and working a part-time job at McDonald's should be more lucrative and better for your family than relying on welfare. We need we need a better standard of living in this country, and we need living wages implemented in this country. And but, I know you aren't necessarily a proponent of a minimum wage at all, but, like, I think the only way to, to rid our nation of this social safety net dependence is to make it the worst possible option, which it's not right now. But if it was the worst possible option, then there'd be more people who are competing for jobs in the market, and therefore jobs wages would go up. Filled. <laughs> it's basic economic principles here oh, that we're yeah, talking I'm about. Sure it is. So uh, that we've never seen in practice ever before because it's not real. People don't want to touch it. People don't want to cut back on it. It's not gonna like this is not going to happen. Uh, so long as both parties just it's the hot potato. It's the hot potato of our republic. We no one wants to touch it. It's not gonna. It's it's not it's I don't see it happening in any any time in the foreseeable future until it becomes so uh, so obvious to us that it's a problem that they're forced to fix it and whoever has um, whoever has that hot potato at the time is going <laughs> to be faced with a serious problem but until that happens yeah this is this is just well we saw this that. is predictable look Bill Clinton welfare was getting so bad that he had to implement yep. welfare reform and then a Democrat implemented a workfare system. Um, and it was very odd. And if a Democrat did that today, they would no longer be a Democrat. Um, so obviously we have very different theories on how to rid our country of this. I mean, like I'm, I'm a Democrat and I'm going to say social safety net. It's messed up right now. Um, and like, that's the whole point of the show is that like I, as a Democrat can say that to you. Um, we just have very different ways of relieving that issue. Yep. Which is uh, to be expected, but at least we got more done in this podcast than anyone in Congress or in the Senate did uh, in their entire tenure. So that's cool. We're going to tweet this at We are sitting in our dorm room right now. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I don't understand why Chuck Schumer hasn't called us and asked for the solution yet. (laughs) We are obviously the people with the answers. I'm in my pajamas right now. I'll get down there right now. I'll call an Uber (laughs) to Capitol Hill right now. Uber's on its way. It's on its way. We're going on on Capitol Hill. We'll show up in our pajamas. And uh, we'll we'll propose our solution. Our own budget deal. Eddie and I have been sitting in the dark for thirty six hours straight, writing our own budget deal. Just so you all know, I'm gonna wing it. I don't know what you've <laughs> been doing, but I'm winging it. We made a really cute PowerPoint. You have to see it sometime. It's 
got cute little graphics. Oh, that's really a cute. A little gif of, uh, of Bill Clinton <laughs> looking all creepy. <laughs> Wait, have you seen the picture that's half Bill Clinton and half Hillary Clinton <laughs> mashed in the same oh, picture? Oh, no. I, I don't remember what they called it, but I'll show you right after this. All right. Um, all right. This has been 40 minutes of your favorite podcast, Go Wonk Yourself. Eddie Michelson, <laughs> Go Wonk Yourself. You know what? <laughs> Lucas, what? go walk yourself. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. We are going to go on a special Valentine's date to Capitol Hill. To <laughs> Capitol Hill. <laughs> Chuck Schumer, you're invited. Mitch, you're not invited. You look too much like a turtle. <laughs>